This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. We also host the annual Wake Up Festival, a five-day experience of transformation, held in August of each year in the beautiful Rocky Mountains. You can also join our free direct access membership program and read transcripts of all of the Insights at the Edge podcasts and search our collection of podcasts with now more than 100 episodes available. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today my guest is Dr. Marty Rossman. Marty is a physician and acupuncturist who has practiced holistic medicine for over 30 years. He's the co-founder of the Academy for Guided Imagery and the author of the award-winning book, Guided Imagery for Self-Healing, and also a book called Fighting Cancer from Within. With Sounds True, Marty has created several programs, including an audio program with Dr. Andrew Weil on self-healing with guided imagery, also a series of guided imagery programs on anxiety relief, stress relief, pain relief, and on other topics as well. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Marty and I spoke about the reasons guided imagery is not more present in medical practice, even with the proven data to support its effectiveness. We also talked about placebos and what the effectiveness of placebos might tell us about the mind-body connection. We talked about some of the basics of how to use guided imagery in your life and why personal imagery can be more powerful than receiving an external image from someone else. We also talked about working with cancer with guided imagery, and finally, why the use of imagery in medicine is such an enduring passion for Marty. Here's my conversation with Dr. Marty Rossman. Marty, when I hear something like guided imagery in the practice of medicine, I think to myself, well, that's kind of the soft stuff, right? I mean, how effective, how powerful, how turbocharged, if you will, really is guided imagery? It's a good question, Tammy. Um, and of course, it's the, in a sense, it's really the key question because it's not that otherwise we wouldn't really be interested in it. But guided imagery can be surprisingly powerful in some circumstances that can actually be measured. I'll give you an example in a minute. And um, and then there are effects that it has on people that I think are very difficult to measure, and I'll talk about that too. The example that comes most quickly to mind in terms of its effectiveness is in terms of, uh, for instance, preparing for surgery. And there's quite a literature on guided imagery that people listening to something like a 
a guided imagery preparation, a 15 or 20 minute relaxation guided imagery preparation for surgery. There's a number of them. Uh, we've made one, I've made one for Sounds True that, that you make available. Um, that people listening to that before surgery have a tremendous reduction in complications from surgery. There's, there's a study that even a simple suggestion, uh, there was a study at UC Davis uh, by Dr. Henry Bennett, where they went into the rooms of patients in the hospital the day before abdominal surgery. Those were in the days when they used to put people in the hospital for the day before. Now you don't have to get out of the car. Um, but they'd go in, and of course people are very frightened usually the day before surgery. They're anxious. And psychologically what happens when we're whenever we're really anxious or frightened is that we tend to regress a bit we become more childlike um, there's a part of us that's looking for somebody who's bigger than us and smarter and more powerful and to reassure us and that's all very unconscious so um, when they went and in, go into the room the day before and they they didn't do any long preparation or hypnotic induction or anything like that they just said to uh, the people they said you know when you wake up from your surgery you might be surprised to find that you're thinking about some of your favorite food and how it looks and how it might smell and that your stomach may begin to churn or and growl and make noises and so on that's all they did that was the complete intervention in those people that they said that too, there was a 50% reduction in a post-operative complication called post-operative ileus, which is when the bowel doesn't start up again, and people don't have bowel movements. And post-operative ileus is a very serious complication of abdominal surgery, um, and something that uh, surgeons, you know, fear, and that we don't really have good medical uh, treatments for. So with that simple suggestion made to people the day before, they cut that by half. Uh, the same research team did a, an interesting study where they said to people, um, you know, your body is very smart, and when you're having the surgery, your body can shunt the blood away from the surgical site. And they gave them the example. They said, you know, when you're embarrassed, how you blush. When you're afraid, your face may blanch. That's an example of how your body opens or closes blood vessels and can move blood to or from an area. They said your body can move the blood away from the area of the surgery so that it's easier for the surgeon to see what they're doing. And then afterwards, it can bring the blood back to enhance the healing that can happen. And they had 40% less blood loss. And that was just with, again, one simple suggestion without a lot of preparation, relaxation. Now, the second one needs to be repeated because in science we like uh, uh, data that's replicated by different, different people. But the first one has been included in a lot of guided imagery preparation CDs and methods that are, are fairly widely used now. And... Um, and seems to actually be a real finding. So to me, that's where the rubber meets the road, where you say this sort of ethereal, airy-fairy, you know, guided imagery, it's invisible, something you do with your mind, it's a nice idea. But to me, when you look and you say, well, somebody can listen to a 15- or 20-minute preparation tape, not only have reduced anxiety, for instance, I did a, 
a study with uh, Kaiser Permanente Cath Lab out here. They do angiograms and cardiac catheterizations and pacemaker uh, placements for people with heart disease. And when they ask people before they go into these procedures on a 0 to 10 scale where 0 is none and 10 is the most you you can handle, uh, what's your anxiety level? The average level was 8 out of 10. They listen to a 15-minute guided imagery preparation which basically takes them through the procedure, tells them what's going to happen, makes suggestions how they can stay relaxed, how they can breathe easily, how well qualified their doctors and nurses are, how uh, you know how everybody's paying attention and everybody's there to take care of them. They listen to it once; their anxiety level goes down to less than one. Wow! On a scale ten, and. The reason that's significant is not only because as a human being, you've relieved a huge amount of anxiety, but also, you know, your physiology changes and you don't have all this adrenaline and catecholamines, which the cardiologists do not want running through your system, you know, when they're doing these procedures. So we're going to be doing follow-up studies to see, you know, if it reduces the complication rate and the post-operative Uh, adverse effect rate of these procedures too, which I think it will. But just the fact that it reduces the anxiety level that much, it does that for for surgeries, it cuts the ileus rate, it cuts the time it takes to do the surgery. I don't understand that at all, but it cuts the time it takes for people to do the surgery. It cuts the amount of time people spend in the hospital. And a couple of years ago, I think it was Blue Cross of California, was so impressed with the data, they sent out 50,000. At that time, they were using, it was back in the days we used cassette tapes. They sent out 50,000 cassette tapes to people having elective surgeries uh, to prepare them for surgery, and they found that uh, they studied uh, women having hysterectomies. And they found all of those benefits that I've already mentioned. Plus, they found that they saved about $800 per patient uh, by having them listen to a $15 tape. So you reduce complications, you reduce bleeding, you reduce anxiety. The surgery goes better, you get out of the hospital faster, and the cost is reduced by a considerable amount. Um, the only thing that's puzzling to me about it is, you know, well, why isn't that mandatory for every surgical procedure that's done in the United States? Well, especially with these kinds of cost savings, you think there would be all kinds of reasons people would be motivated to... The surgeons like them, the anesthesiologists like them. So I, I guess it's on us to... I mean, if that was a drug, uh, if that was in a pill and you had a pill that had been shown to have these benefits, it would be malpractice not to give it to everybody having a surgical procedure. Okay, so help us understand the mechanisms that underlie how guided imagery works. Well, I think there's multiple mechanisms. I think, basically, I think imagery, which... I think imagery is pretty well defined as uh, thinking in sensory terms. So an image has has sort of quasi-sensory qualities. An image is a thought that you uh, can imagine seeing, hearing, tasting, feeling, sometimes all of the above, um, in your imagination, in your mind's eye. And imagery is 
a coding language of the brain. I think the best way to understand it is that there's um, two major coding languages of the human brain by which we communicate with each other and we communicate internally, and one is whatever our language happens to be. You could argue that there's three coding languages, one being your, your native language, the second being uh, mathematics, ways of representing the world internally to yourself. And the third is through imagery. And imagery happens to be one that affects our mood and our physiology much more powerfully than the other two. You know, it's um, there are people who love mathematics so much that, you know, when they solve a mathematical problem, they they get ecstatic, I'm sure. But they're fairly minor uh, compared to people who um, may be involved in rituals, in prayer, in meditation, in imagining things like being connected to a source of inspiration or being confident or being relaxed or having whatever quality you want to be and letting themselves imagine that. Just like the Olympic athletes, you know, these days we're all watching these amazing Olympic athletes, the the gymnasts who do these amazing tricks and the, the divers and so on and so forth. Well, they don't learn how to do those things I mean, by saying, I'm going to contract this muscle and I'm going to relax that muscle, I'm going to contract this muscle and relax that muscle, they have to get an image of what they're doing in their head before they can get their body to do that triple somersault and double twist, you know. And they do all kinds of study and practice and so on, but they and they look at other people, they have to be able to get that image. And you see a lot of them using visualization and, and imagery because imagery is how we learn to do physical things. You learn to ski by watching somebody else ski and then having them, you know, guide you and and help you kind of move into the internal image that you're beginning to form. Same thing with with any physical act, really. You've got to get a mental image of it. If you... You know, one of the things we use a lot in teaching people very simple imagery and, and how it affects physiology is if we ask people to salivate, you'll find that about 20% of people will be able to create more saliva just by thinking about it that way. But if you ask people actually to kind of close their eyes and imagine they're in their kitchen and they're at a cutting board and they've got a big, fat, juicy lemon and they've got a big knife, and they cut the lemon into halves, and then they cut it into quarters, and they see a, maybe there's a drop of lemon juice on the surface of the pale yellow lemon where it's cut, and they bring it up slowly to their towards their mouth, and they smell that lemony scent, and then they imagine biting into that lemon and sucking the lemon juice down their throat you'll get about 70% of people that salivate, you know, and you'll get a squirt of saliva from the side of your mouth. If you have them do it with an orange, they'll get a squirt of saliva from the under the tongue because that those sublingual glands secrete saliva that breaks down sugars, whereas the parotid glands on the side of the mouth 
react to sour flavors. And if you do a lemon, you'll actually get it from the side of the mouth. People will wrinkle up their face. And it's just an example of how a simple image gets a physiologic response. This, uh, the same thing is true, you know, for, for guys. I just talk about uh, sexual fantasy. Just, you know, remember the last time you had a sexual fantasy. And um, it's not only for guys, but it's very prominent for men. Um, men are very tuned into sexual fantasy. And when they sexually fantasize, they get big responses in their body, um, you know, from those images in their brain. And that, that generally makes it pretty clear how imagining something can affect other areas of your of your physiology. And that's why it's important. It just seems to be the coding language that prompts the strongest responses from the body. So, you know, interestingly, you know, I started off by asking you, you know, guided imagery, it's considered sort of soft and even a little woo-woo when it comes to a Mm -hmm. medical response to a problem. But now after listening to you give these descriptions and feeling into how powerful imagery is to evoke physiological responses, I have the absolutely opposite question coming up, which is, why has guided imagery and the use of imagery for healing been excluded, do you think, so much from medical practice, given its effectiveness? Why isn't it more integrated into medicine today? Another excellent question. Um, I do a talk that's called The Art and Science of Mind-Body Medicine, and um, I typically do that when I go to hospitals or if I'm invited to do grand rounds and address uh, a group of my colleagues. And over the years, I developed a, a presentation, and it was just full of data and statistics and studies because there is a huge literature on on mind body medicine and when you really look at it it goes back 40 years and when you really look at it carefully it almost all involves imagery and guided imagery again because imagery is the basic coding language of the psychophysiologic pathway and as our colleague Ken Pelletier says you know he says there is there's more evidence more studies uh uh, on mind-body effects than any other effect, not only in alternative medicine, but just about in conventional medicine. There's a, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of studies. So I would put them together in, you know, in impressive slide, PowerPoint slides and so on and so forth, and I'd kind of gird up ready to kind of do battle with my, my, my colleagues in my mind, um, you know, who often I perceived as skeptical and, and maybe not interested in it. And then about 10 years ago, I was at a hospital down in Central California. There were about 100 doctors there, community doctors. And before I started my talk, I said, you know, I, I just want to do something I've never done before. I, I said, how many of you think that mind-body effects, the effects of your patient's attitude my, and uh, the way that they use their mind, are a critical factor in their health and healing. And you know how many people raise their hands? A hundred. All of them. Instantaneously. With no hesitation, no looking around to see, you know, who else raised their hand. Every single one of them just shot their hand right up. And then I said, well, how many of you have ever had any training or education in how to use these? 
how to teach mind-body skills to patients, two people raise their hands. So I think it's kind of the same as nutrition, which is another big deal in integrative medicine, you know, which I practice. We used to call it holistic medicine. Um, it's just not taught in the curriculum. And so most doctors don't feel like it's their business. It's not part of medical training. It's something you have to learn. You know, if your doctor is knowledgeable in either nutrition or mind-body medicine, it's because he or she has a special interest in it, and they went out of their way in a postgraduate to to somehow get trained or certified or educated in uh, in how to use that, even though they all understand and they all pay lip service and honor to the fact that the in humans the mind-body connection is I think it's undoubtedly the strongest force in all of medicine it's what makes human medicine different than veterinary medicine you know veterinary medicine you can just treat the body um, although you have to treat the owner as well <laughs> but, but you're saying that you think the point of leverage is in medical training well, one of I the points, yeah. Yeah, I think the medical training, it's not part of the curriculum. It's not part of It's always mentioned in modern medical schools. I think there's a little bit more attention paid to the doctor-patient interaction and the importance of stress and relaxation. But it's a, you know, when I go talk to doctors, Tammy, it's astounding. Just even when I talk about the simple basics of stress physiology and relaxation physiology and the the axis between the hypothalamus, the pituitary, the adrenal glands, which is um, such a basic thing to understand. It's just amazing how many doctors have, don't pay any attention to it. They're really, you know, drilled and trained, and um, uh, and it's gotten worse in the modern day because of the economic pressures. Um, you know, which have basically for you know are basically pressing doctors to see more and more patients in less and less time, and the the meaning of medicine, which you know, to me, medicine has a big M on it, and it's more medicine in the in the way that our Native American forebears thought of medicine. Medicine was really anything that affected you, affected your spirit, affected your body, affected your life. You know, it could be chants or rituals or prayers or, you know, beads or rocks or bear claws or herbs or whatever could be big medicine. Words, prayers could be big medicine. Um, but medicine in in America almost equates to drugs and, and uh, procedures. And we've you know, the medicine of the mind, the medicine of the spirit just does not have the place that it uh, that it deserves and it needs. And I think it's a huge loss for, for everybody because it takes a lot of the soulfulness and the, uh, out of medicine. So I think one is it's not a focus of education. It's so, we you know, we learn. You, you go to school to learn how to be a doctor. Well, if they teach you 10,000 hours of one thing and... Uh, you know, two hours of another thing, guess what you're going to be doing? Right, but just to 
go under the surface one more level. I mean, who is deciding upon these medical curriculums, the training program, and how does that shift? Another excellent question. Um, you know, I think it's something like it's between 65 and 70 percent, maybe even a little bit higher of all the research that's done in all the medical schools in America are funded by pharmaceutical companies. And over 80 percent of all the postgraduate medical education done for doctors are funded and presented by pharmaceutical companies. And they have ways of, uh, you know, doctors have to reveal their, uh, uh, any business um, interactions they have with pharmaceutical companies. You know, there has to be, um, you have to reveal those kinds of things. And if you talk about the treatment of a certain condition, you can't just go up there and sell a new drug that you've been doing research on for that pharmaceutical company. But because they're paying your way there and paying your fee there, that you do that and you talk about the older drugs as well. But you people very, very, very rarely talk about alternatives to drugs. They don't talk about nutrition. They don't talk about lifestyle. They don't talk about mind-body things. It's, it's medicine equals pharmaceuticals and there's a huge I mean that's their business mm -hmm. and they pay for the education of doctors and mm -hmm. they pay and they provide the education for doctors and they provide the research budgets uh, it used to be the the NIH provided you know a significant part of the budget but their research budgets but their funding is way down has been for quite a while now so you go to a medical school and they're largely funded by pharmaceutical companies mm -hmm. they're interested in finding pharmaceuticals and um, and and the other part of it that's been that's really so interesting is that the you know it has permeated the practice of medicine so deeply that and we see this in in alternative or integrative medicine all the time where people say well where are the double-blinded placebo-controlled studies you know that can prove that acupuncture or guided imagery or nutri uh, you know can have effects like that. Well, they're few and far between, partly because they're extremely expensive. A, B, this gold standard, which is the double-blinded, randomized placebo-controlled study, that's that's considered the gold standard <clears throat> for proving that something that an intervention actually has an effect. And the problem with it is it only is applicable to things like pharmaceuticals. Because mm. if you give somebody... So think about this. You have to double-blind the study. And the reason, in other words, the patient can't know whether they're getting the real pill or the placebo pill, which supposedly is filled with inactive ingredients, right? The reason you have to blind the study is because there's huge literature that show if the patient thinks that they're getting an active medicine, there's a big effect of that. Mm -hmm. Alpha will get better mm -hmm. if they think they're getting a medicine. Is that not guided imagery? Yeah. 
the whole all right then they found that even if the person giving the patient the pill knows whether it's the real pill or the real injection or the real infusion or not that affects the outcome even though they don't say anything think about that one that's pretty interesting so they have to go to all that trouble and these studies cost you know they cost a couple hundred million dollars to do these studies by the time you get enough people enough centers to research it so you know are you and I going to do studies that cost a couple hundred million dollars in order to prove that a 15-minute guided imagery that you know we sell for $11 <laughs> is going to help cut surgical complications? It's ridiculous. Plus, we can't blind it. Right. You can't. You can't. There's no way to blind it. There's no equivalent placebo. But the most startling fact about all of that, to me is that if you look at it and you see, well, look at the extremes that we have to go to to make sure that it's not the effect of somebody's expectations and beliefs and images that are causing the healing effect. I mean, you're pointing here that the placebo effect itself is a demonstration of the power of the mind in healing. Exactly. Exactly. You have to go to those extremes to get it out of the equation. We have to take the human out of the testing process. Yeah, yeah. You have to take the human out. You have to take the mind-body element out of the equation, and that—that's right and proper. I don't object to that because a lot of these pharmaceuticals that they're studying are, you know, have toxic effects as well. They're not just beneficial. They're not clean enough yet. You know, maybe someday we'll get to a place where pharmaceuticals are just really sparkling clean, and they'll have a pill that you can take, and you get happy and healthy and wealthy and wise, you know, and there are no downside and no side effects. And I'll be first in line to take it, you know, once I'm convinced that that's true. But the powerful medicines that that we use these days, some of the immune system uh, modulators, some of the chemotherapy medications, some of the really powerful medications that, that have big-time effects on the body, they do have some very positive upsides for people with difficult diseases that, that we previously haven't been able to help. So you got to give credit where credit's due. But they, they also typically have big-time downsides, you know, and significant risks and, um, and are not easy drugs to take, you know, the, the kinds of medicines that people take for, again, for cancers or for autoimmune diseases or transplants and so on and so forth. They have significant toxicity and um, and we always as doctors we always have to weigh the risks to the benefits we always have to look what's the potential benefit here what are the potential risks and the higher the benefit in relation to the risk the easier it is to use that that intervention um, you know imagery has a huge benefit to risk ratio there's almost no risk extremely little risk and often very very significant benefit and so it's something that should be used routinely the same as improving somebody's nutrition the same mm-hmm. as interventions like hands-on healing or massage or acupuncture or things like that you know the the risk benefit ratio is tremendously in favor of the of mm-hmm. the patient these things should be used 
routinely for patients that will accept them and um, you know and wait on riskier things till till later on yeah. uh, You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. If you're interested in listening to previous episodes of Insights at the Edge, they're all available for free in a searchable database as part of our new direct access membership program. For more information, please visit soundstrue.com forward slash direct access. And now back to Insights at the Edge. Well, let's talk for a moment, Marty, about sort of the do's and don'ts of using imagery for self-healing. Like, what are the ways that I want to approach it? If I have, you know, just the kinds of normal things people have, we can get into maybe more how you would use guided imagery with more disease processes. But for the beginning here, just, you know, I have a backache, I have a headache, you know, my stomach hurts. What are the do's and don'ts of how I might use imagery in a situation like that? Well, I think the most prominent and almost only don't that I know of, Tammy, is to, you know, is that you want to make sure that you don't have something that needs to be treated otherwise. Um, so if you get, um, if you get shot it wouldn't be a bad idea to know how to relax while you're waiting for the ambulance or in the ambulance while you're on your way to the hospital, but you should go, so go to the hospital. That's why you're a good doctor, Marty, you know? <laughs> well, it's true. Yeah. Um, if you have something, you know, if you've got a backache for a couple of days, it's very likely that guided imagery, relaxation, breathing, guided imagery is going to help because muscular tension and stress are a component of a huge amount of the typical common symptoms that we all have, the pain in the butt, the pain in the neck, the headache, all those things, uh, the, the upset stomach and so on and so forth, relaxation and imagery help, a lot of those things. And if they go away fairly quickly, then you're, then you're fine. But if you've got a terrible pain in your gut and it's, you know, it's with you for more than several days in spite of do, you know, taking antacids and doing self-help things and doing relaxation and guided imagery and so on and so forth. You should go get that checked out and make sure that it's not something that that could be kind of treated more definitively, you know. Or if you've got a pain in your gut and you've had it for three months and you've lost 25 pounds, you may want to get that checked out as opposed to having intermittent kinds of irritable bowel kinds of symptoms, which typically do respond very well to relaxation and, and imagery. So the main don't, I think, is don't uh, don't ignore the fact that there may be things that happen to you physically that can be helped medically and where, where a good uh, uh, health professional uh, may be able to help diagnose and, and treat you. And if you don't ignore that, then there's very, very little risk. The only the only other risk for guided imagery that I'm really aware of is if somebody has a history of psychosis, has a history of mental hospitalization, you know, has trouble, has trouble really knowing the difference between their imaginary world and the outside world, you know. In imagery, we go into our inner world, 
And for most people, we know whether we're in our inner world or our outer world. People with people who have a tendency to become psychotic may not be able to tell that, and they need to be a little careful with guided imagery and need to work with people who know how to work with them on that. But that's a small percentage of the population. The do's are, you know, get knowledgeable about it. Um, um, you know, years ago, Tammy, you helped uh, Andrew Weil and I make a, a really nice guided imagery set. I think it's called Self-Healing with Guided Imagery, and it's uh, one CD has uh, us talking for about an hour about guided imagery and why it works and how it works and, and how people can use it, and the other CD has three, what I consider the three sort of fundamental relaxation and guided imagery skills that uh, that I found to be most useful over the 40 years I've practiced and other people have found to be most useful. And so that's a really nice introduction and way to begin to experiment and just, uh, you know, experiment yourself. On that level, it can be very simple, easy, safe. You know, there are other conditions, maybe if people have a very complex or difficult kind of psychological issues or woundedness, people who have been abused as young people and have wounds or scars from that, those are places where it's usually best to to work with uh, health professionals that have been well-trained in guided imagery and, and who can help them work with it safely. But when it comes to how I might approach a symptom like a back pain or a, mm-hmm. a stomach ache with guided imagery, do mm-hmm. I want to come up with whatever image occurs to me, do I want the image to be, you know, big and strong and, you know, or soft and gentle? Or, you know, how, how do I know what imagery will be the most effective? Well, I think the uh, the way that I like to work with that and, and the way that I teach people to work with imagery is to first uh, go through some sort of a relaxation process, whether it's uh, simple breathing or muscular relaxation, uh, go to a place in your mind where you, that's beautiful and peaceful and safe, you know, so that you're relaxed but you're still awake and you're aware. What I like to do is have people focus directly on the symptom itself, which is exactly what we usually don't do, right? If we have a headache, we just want it to go away. If we have a backache, we want it to go away. That makes sense. I'm I'm in that club too. We just want pain to go away. We want to kill pain. We want to take a painkiller. But, you know, the thing that we miss by doing that, Tammy, is that pain and other symptoms uh, can really be feedback to us. They can be, they're probably better seen as, as the equivalent of uh, an oil light on a car. You know, so your car has a light, and when it comes on, it's telling you there's a problem, it needs more oil. And you, you wouldn't ignore that oil light, you know, um, and... If you do, you ignore it at, uh, at your risk, you're probably going to blow your engine up and it'll cost you several thousand dollars. So most people, when the oil light is on and it stays on, you know, they take it to the gas station or to the mechanic. When they take it to the mechanic, they don't say, hey, put a piece of tape over that oil light because it's bugging me. Or why don't you take that light out because it's annoying me, it's making me nervous. But that's kind of what we ask our doctors to do in a way. And sometimes the doctors are, and doctors often are, um, need to just treat people symptomatically because we don't know where that's coming from. But with imagery, you have the opportunity to kind of look under the hood, and that doesn't mean that it's a deep, dark psychological uh, 
issue. It just may mean that that headache or neck pain or back pain, a lot of times these things are from an accumulation of stress and tension. There's muscular tension. You get decrease in blood flow in the area. The area becomes inflamed and painful, maybe pinching on a nerve. And when you, first of all, when you take the time to to, rela- to physiologically relax, a lot of symptoms improve just from the relaxation. Um, the second thing is, if there's still a symptom left, you can focus your attention on it in that relaxed state and kind of ask your unconscious mind for an image. Just what we say is let an image appear that can represent that uh, that symptom. And to people's surprise, uh, an image typically will pop into mind, and it may be Sometimes it's sort of anatomical and physiological, but more often than not, it's a, it's a symbolic image or it's an image that people didn't expect, or it may be, you know, people may be focusing on a, a pain in the stomach and they get an image of a, of a fire. And then I'll just ask them, okay, if, that, if the fire represents the symptom, if it represents the pain, kind of play fix the picture like they used to have in the Sunday comics. They'd have what's wrong with this picture. You'd look at a picture and you'd see what's out of place. So in your image, if the fire represents the symptom, I would typically say to somebody, okay, if that represents the symptom, what would it look like if it was all better? Or what would you imagine bringing into this image that would help to relieve the symptom or soothe it or, you know, uh, and most people would think in that kind of instance of of water, of, of watering it or bringing a fire hose or a, a stream or a creek or a river and so on and so forth. And they'll very often find that they get nice symptomatic relief. And, and if it's a simple temporary kind of a problem, that may be all people need to do. Sometimes if the symptom keeps coming back, there's something that's that uh, may be a knottier problem or a, an issue that really needs to get uh, to get addressed and resolved. And there are lots and lots of examples of uh, you know of people getting uh, images that we even I even encourage them to have a, a conversation with. You know, ask the image why it's there, where did it come from, what's it there for, what does it want from you, what does it have to offer you if you give it what it wants. It, it sounds a little wacky in some circles to be carrying on imaginary conversations with with yourself but if you think of it as that the image that your brain focusing on the image comes up with a representation of it your brain's very obviously intelligent it knows what's going on in your body it gives you an image that symbolizes the process that's going on and you can have that conversation between two parts of your brain, one the part of you that you ordinarily identify with, and the part that's represented by the symptom, you can often get a lot of information about not only what's going on, but also about how you might be able to resolve the issue. Have you found it more effective for people to come up with their own personal imagery, just whatever image arises, versus a doctor or a book telling someone what to imagine? I do. I'm, I'm biased in, in favor of that. I find that when people are able to do that process, it's using the receptive aspect of imagery. Tammy, it's, uh, I think when a lot of people think of guided imagery or visualization, they think of it as a mind-over-matter kind of situation. I'm going to use my mind to overcome this 
this pain or symptom or illness and and there's a certain utility to that you know and use my mind to tell my body what to do but i think that it's more powerful to first listen to your body and see if there's something it, it needs from you or wants you to pay attention to and then respond to it than it is to just try to uh, to overcome it because i think a lot of the symptoms that we have come from asking things of our body that are really not normal for it you know we we overwork and overstress our bodies habitually in our in our culture where um we don't we don't live like our more primitive ancestors do and and there's many advantages to that but there's also disadvantages you know uh, natural living peoples um have a much more relaxed rhythm of life even though they may be scraping for survival and have to hunt out in the jungle and you know are are have you know wild animals around them and things like that but they they typically have relatively short periods of stress uh like if they're hunting or they're at war or they're dealing with a with some kind of a crisis uh, interposed by often fairly long periods of of non-stress of just doing ordinary day-to-day things socializing with their family and their tribe napping playing games um hanging out with their children um you know and just doing the normal everyday kinds of things whereas in modern life we tend to be wound up and busy and focused and stressed and have relatively little downtime and the downtime is important for health because that's when the body is able to do what i call paint up clean up fix up you know it's able to concentrate without distraction on on just bringing things back into balance rather than that feeling that you're always busy and you're always fighting and there's always too much to do and there's always decisions to make and so on and so forth that that kind of chronic long-term stress the stress reachers stress excuse me stress researchers call it type 2 stress that is a major risk factor for almost all the leading diseases that we have in modern life heart disease high blood pressure strokes diabetes uh even cancer you know it's a huge huge risk factor and so just breaking into that and breathing and relaxing and kind of punctuating that helps with a lot of symptoms and also it's in that quiet time when you can step back from your life that you might see hey there's something over here that needs your attention either something in you or something uh, doing with somebody who's important to you that needs your attention and the only way that the the body which in a sense is uh you know your body is run unconsciously so if you think that your mind is much bigger than your conscious mind your unconscious mind your body's run unconsciously one of the ways that your unconscious can get your conscious mind to pay attention is to signal through the body mm-hmm. uh again if we just approach it by saying oh let's just make this pain go away we may lose the signal value of that to where it becomes indecipherable whereas if we take a little time let it speak to us and let it speak through creating its own image you get these you get some very very interesting and and precisely proper images for the person 
it's not I don't think it's near as powerful to read a book and say, Okay, if you have a headache then imagine this happening and imagine that go away. I think it, it can help some people. But you know, our um if you if you learn how to use your imagination to be receptive to your unconscious, especially the um what I think of as the helpful, the guiding parts of our unconscious, which which I think you can also access through imagery by imagine that in your quiet place there's a, a loving, friendly, wise friend or guide, and you have a talk with that figure about your symptoms. It's it's often astounding what kinds of information people will get. It goes way beyond, you know, uh, a book that tells you what you're, you know, what your dream meant or what image you should use for that particular problem. Now, I know this is an area you've done a lot of work, which is working with patients who have cancer with imagery. And I'm curious to know, in those instances, is working with imagery that's, you know, we're going to fight the cancer cells, Mm -hmm. is that the right type of imagery to work with versus more you know, peaceful, we're going to make friends with the cancer cells, or is it whatever the body of that person comes up with? Well, it depends what level we're talking about. On the, on the level of, like, what's more effective, nobody knows, I think. On the level of, because, you know, you just don't find cancer patients who, where the only thing they're doing is guided imagery, you know, and you couldn't find, let's take a thousand cancer patients and they'll imagine you know, blowing up their cancer with nuclear weapons, and let's take a thousand cancer patients, and they'll they'll imagine making peace with their cancer and transforming them into nice cells. You know, so and I don't think we're ever going to have that kind of study. But as a clinician, as somebody who works personally with people at a, a level of depth where they do bring their own unconscious imagery, and what I would say is. For some people, one is better, and for some people, the other is better. And I've worked with people where the imagery has been important and, I think, helpful to them who have done both kinds of of imagery. You know, I I thought a lot about that, Tammy, when I wrote a book called Fighting Cancer from Within, which is about how to use imagery and mind-body approaches to help yourself you know, get through cancer and its treatment. And I spent a long time thinking about, you know, is is it fighting cancer from within or is it healing cancer from within? And I can argue both sides of it. I decided to use the word fighting because, you know, when I really looked at all the cancer patients I've worked with, all the cancer patients I've talked to, communicated with, um... The majority, the vast majority of them experience it as a fight. There's a battle. And um, maybe that's because that's our cultural approach to medicine. I mean, medicine is filled with military terms. You know, we, um, we, have, a, we have a medical armamentarium. We actually call it that, you know. Um, and we think of it as a fight. We're going to beat the big C. We're going to fight this thing. We're not going to, you know, you see the stars and celebrities who get it gone. TV, and they're always talking about how they're going to fight it and they're going to beat it and they're not going to let it beat them. And that's the, you know, it's a fighting spirit. 
and there's there's something to say for that. There's certain studies on uh, on people whether they use guided imagery or not, where it looks like a fighting spirit is a good thing to have in response to a life-threatening disease like uh, like cancer. But it's not the only response. But but it's the majority response. Even even going through the treatments, chemotherapy, surgery, radiation therapy. Even if you're a peace-loving person, there's often a fight or a battle to make those decisions that get yourself to treatment, to you know, to put up with the side effects and so on and so forth. So, so I decided to call it fighting, but um, but it's not the only way. I have worked with people who've you know survived cancer. Um, again, they they don't just do guided imagery. Nobody just does guided imagery that I know of. Um, they typically have conventional medical treatment. They often have complementary and integrative treatments as well, and they use their mind-body connection. You know, and I've had people where they dialogue with the cancer cells. They make deals with them. They they make a peace with them. They ask if there's something that it's trying to tell them, and they and that's how they imagine it to go. Not not everybody's willing to do that. As a matter of fact, most people are not. But the ones who are, I've seen some very moving, moving kinds of things. And there are some issues with the with the healing of it, Tammy. That um, the the main one that I see is when people are very loving and they're talking to their cancer cells. They're imagining their cancer cells becoming, you know, benign and rejoining the community of cells and making peace with it and being being very loving and I do believe in love as a as a very potent healing force but then they're doing chemotherapy at the same time you know what I mean yeah and so there's a there's a um there's a cognitive there's a dissonance there like here I'm being all lovey-dovey in my imagery then I'm taking cellular poisons that are aimed at killing the cancer cells so with some people you have to I think, actually, if you're working with people, to be really honest and have them be doing wholehearted healing, you have to address that issue somehow. And and interestingly enough, they're not actually incompatible. And I learned this from a patient of mine who was very oriented towards healing through love and yet was going through very aggressive chemotherapy. And we had a number of talks about how he put that together and and it was an issue. And then uh, he came in one day, very excited. And he had gone to, we have a, natu- a wonderful natural history museum up here in San Francisco. And I'd been to it many times. And he said that he had gone this one weekend. And they had these dioramas, these uh, models of humanity through history and different cultures that you go through. And, and he had seen this one diorama, which was a... Uh, an Eskimo, an Inuit, in furs and so on, standing on the ice next to a seal, which it had just killed for food. And, you know, there's blood on the seal and so on. And the um, the plaque on, the, uh, on this display said that, you know, the the Inuit would needed to hunt for food. They had to survive. But like most native cultures, when they went hunting, they would always pray to the spirit of the animal that they were hunting. And when an animal presented itself, 
they felt that it was an offering on the part of the spirit of the animal, you know, and they would kill the animal, but they would thank its spirit, and they would pray for its spirit to go on to the next world, which they believed, you know, was there. And he was very excited because he felt like he could do the same thing with his cancer cells, that he could, um, in his own words, he felt like, I've gotten a lot out of this cancer, I found out who loves me, I found out who are my friends, I've, it's slowed me down, it's made me think more about what I want to do with my life, and all these these sort of, what some people call terrible gifts of serious illness, people often do get benefits from them. He said, I can thank my cancer for having that. I can pray for its spirit to go on and live, you know, in another dimension at the same time that it has to, it has to be removed from my body. And it kind of resolved that fighting, healing kind of dissonance inside him. A long-winded answer to your question. Yeah, a good answer. You know, what's really running through our conversation for me as a felt sense is your incredible passion and dedication to people becoming more aware of the power of imagery and healing. I'm curious for you, and this is now, you know, four decades of your life that you've dedicated to teaching this material and working directly with patients. What's your own understanding of why this is such a passion for you? You know, I think, I have since I was very little, I've always been interested in human consciousness. And it seems to me that maybe, you know, maybe we're fooling ourselves, but it seems like consciousness is what differentiates the human from other life forms that we know, at least our particular kind of consciousness. And it seems to be such a remarkable gift, um, the ability to remember the past, the ability to imagine the future, the ability to make decisions that can potentially change the course of not only your own life, but of the lives of people around you, and in some cases, the, the lives of, you know, hundreds of millions of people. Uh, around you, the ability to invent and create things that uh, haven't existed before. Um, these seem to be unique to the human being, and um, it's such a powerful gift, and at the same time, I think it's also a huge responsibility, you know, that we have in order to use it, uh, to use it well. I don't know that we're we're wise enough to use it, and and I think maybe for that reason that that most of us, for a great part of our lives, live you know live uh, unconscious lives, and are maybe are don't feel adequate to to meet that challenge of of having the potential power that's there in consciousness, you know. At the same time, what a waste that is. Um, and we live in a world that, I think, you know, we live in a world where the, the major threats to exist, to our existence, are 
have been created by the human mind. The, uh, you know, the, um, the climate change, the threat of overpopulation, the, um, the uh, unbalanced distribution of resources, the imagined differences that come from what religion, what God you worship, and and the uh, to me the perverted conclusion that because you worship a God that's different than me that you're uh, an infidel and you're not worthy of living and you're frightening and we should you know and we want to eradicate you from the earth and the weaponry that is now available to uh, you know that can still has the potential to eradicate huge numbers of not only the human but all the living population of the earth you know all of those things are created by a poor use I think of imagination by an unconscious uh, use of our creative abilities and so and as a doctor I mean on a day-to-day level um, and I think you know certainly I saw it in my uh, in my family and in my community I would just from a very young age I just saw people creating problems for themselves that didn't actually exist outside of their perception and outside of their imagination. You know, whether you call it anxiety or worry or or stress, it's just we're very good at creating problems for ourselves. And I think it's a misuse of this incredible power we have of of creative imagination. It's a it's a poor handling of a powerful thing. And it seems to me that we would all be better off if people, including myself, learned how to use this more consciously. You know, we're, we're learned how to use it to solve problems instead of create problems. And, and it shows up every day in my medical practice, and just as a medical doctor, you know, as a primary medical doctor, everybody's in agreement that somewhere between 50 and 70% of all this, all the problems that are presented to primary care doctors are uh, directly related to anxiety, stress, worry, and, and, their, and their consequences, their sequelae. So when I talk to other doctors, I sometimes say, you know, really you could say that the job of a primary care doctor is to is to is to determine what's not anxiety and stress you know mm-hmm. sort out <laughs> you know most of its anxiety and stress and the symptoms it presents and we but we have to be careful to try to sort out if there's something else going on that we need to treat in a in a different manner so i i see it in my practice i see it in um, i see it in my students i see it in myself you know, it's hard to be conscious. It's there are ways in which it's easier to be unconscious, but ultimately, it's uh, I think it's harder. We create more problems for ourselves and others. So somehow that just got me on this bandwagon, and I, yeah, there's something inside me that says, "Look, we've got this." Uh, you know, we we ate, we bit into the apple on the tree of knowledge. You know, and we got kicked out of the Garden of Eden, and uh, that that bite out of the apple is that we found out that we can we have creative abilities you know 
and we can be co-creators to some degree, sometimes a small degree, sometimes a large degree, um, in our lives and the lives of others. And that's a, there's something in me that just feels strongly that we should be morally responsible for stepping up to that, uh, to that potential. I've been speaking with Dr. Marty Rossman, and Marty with Sounds True has published many guided imagery audio programs, including a program with Dr. Andrew Weil, which teaches the basics of self-healing with guided imagery. He's also published with Sounds True a program using guided imagery to prepare for surgery and to prepare for childbirth and a guided imagery program for headache relief, pain relief, stress relief, and anxiety relief. Marty, it's always great to hear your voice. I have to say I find it uh, deeply relaxing just listening to the sound of your voice as well as hearing your heart and intelligence through the sound. So it's wonderful to speak with you. Likewise, Tammy. I appreciate it. Soundstrue.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.